Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Uh, I'm Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here. How are we doing, guys? We doing good? Woo! Okay, good. Smattering of you are doing good. Um, hey, I'm grateful you're here with us today, whether you're in, in person or online. Uh, we gotta, we're, we're continuing through our series in Mark, as you can see. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, flip open there. You can click open on your device if you want to. Um, but as you're doing that, uh, many of you know, uh, Pastor Jeff actually just talked about Man Life 2022 was on Friday. Guys, who was there? Any guys in the room? Woo, a little shout, okay. None of you? Cool, strong silent types. I like it. Um, but uh, yeah, we had about 50 guys there who showed up. We had a, a cornhole tournament and uh, Pastor Kyle and Michael Curtis, his partner, were the, uh, the winners of the cornhole tournament, much to my chagrin. I know, Kyle, we get it. Um, and uh, so he will, I'm sure if you talk with him, let you know how he won. But at the end of the day, he beat a junior higher to do so. So I'm like, come on, man. How? I'm just kidding. Um, but we threw some hatchets as well. Marcelino Valdez, the, the winning hatchet thrower, um, chalked that up for a skill you will literally never need in your entire life. Um, and uh, then we gave away, you guys remember in the, uh, the, the Man Life video, the I'm a Man video, we had that, uh, that shot of the Nike Monarchs, got my Monarchs on that, that line. Uh, we gave those Monarchs away as well. And Ken Ogden was the big winner of the, the Monarchs. And uh, he happened to be a size 10, which was great because that's the size that we had. So um, all of it, all of it worked out. But the highlight of the, the night was actually uh, we had, we brought uh, one of our members of our church, his name's Mark Avila, to come and share his testimony. It's something we've been wanting to do more and more at some of these events. I know at some of the ladies events that we've had, um, we've had some ladies share testimony. We've tried to have some different men share their testimony as well and that sort of thing. And so Mark came and he he shared his, his testimony. Some of you may know Mark, some, some may not know him. He's kind of a quieter guy, but he really does love supporting the work of the church. He loves Jesus a whole ton. Um, and uh, he kind of supports us behind the scenes. He's one of those behind the scene guys. Before any event that we have, he always comes to me and he's like, hey, if you need anything, you just let me know. Like, you guys know that type of person. So that's just, that's kind of who Mark is. But in his testimony, and it's so much longer than, than this, um, but he tells about after he got saved from a life of, of sin and, and regret and frustration and life circumstances, like all of these things that he was kind of reveling in. He talked about uh, his alcoholism. He talked about a whole bunch of stuff that God really rescued him from. But after all of these things, he, he finds Jesus. And then he decides it's time to get baptized at that point, which he came to the right church, right? And so he, he decided it was time to, time to get baptized. And he comes on stage and he shares his testimony on stage that me and him get in the tank and I dunk him in the tank. That's the pastoral term for baptism in case you were curious. So I dunked him. Um, and then uh, uh, he gets out, he walks back backstage. And as you go backstage during our baptisms, uh, we close off these back bathrooms back here so the people who are getting baptized can get changed or whatever. As he walks in, he slipped on our tile and broke his elbow, right? This is three minutes after he broke his elbow. He said like he tore a bunch of tendons and muscle and all that stuff. I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm pretty sure like tendons were hanging out of the bottom of his arm like it was that uh, it wasn't that bad but he had to go for surgery he was in a sling for a bunch of months but he said like as he was laying there he thought to himself god why would you allow this to happen i literally just walked off 
stage from getting baptized, from making a public profession of my faith. And, and not three minutes later, I'm now going to have to go get surgery for a busted arm, right? So uh, the next day, I think it was Monday, maybe it was Tuesday, I don't know, um, he, he, had, he scheduled a doctor's appointment, went into the doctor, and of course the doctor asked, what happened? To which he responded, well, I got baptized, right? Which is a great, it's not a great testimony for baptism at FBH, you know what I mean? It's like, I got baptized at this one church and I busted my elbow. Um, so... Uh, so anyway, so he goes on to, he's telling this story, and, and he says that, that as he thought to himself, like, God, why me? And then he got into the doctor's office. The doctor asked him what happened. Well, this appointment that shouldn't have lasted more than 30 minutes, minutes ended up lasting over four and a half hours, and in which period of time the doctor confessed his faith. Like he led this doctor to the Lord in the midst of this entire thing. Absolutely cool thing. Yeah, you can give that a round of applause. So really, really cool thing that, that happened, right? And so, so the, the point that I would, I would like to make here is that, that Mark realized that he is a new creation at this point. Like he could have easily allowed that situation, even after making this big profession of faith, this is a marked moment in my life. Like I am going to be known for loving and following Jesus from this point forward. Like he could have gone back there, busted his elbow, went back home and fell right back into the same sin that he fell into or gone to the doctor's office and said, yeah, I made a profession of faith. And then immediately afterwards, I broke my elbow. And like, I don't know about this whole Jesus in church thing, because why would God allow something like that to happen to me. But he didn't. He recognized at this point that he is actually a, he is a, a new creation, that he was going to proclaim his name forever. And so that conversation, obviously, like I, like I said, opened up this longer conversation to this man coming to faith. And, and Mark could have gone one of those two directions, right? All of us have those moments, every single one of us, these moments where we just feel like maybe the world is against us. We feel like regardless of our faith in Jesus, we are maybe always going to be guilty. We're always going to go maybe back to our sin. We're always going to be defined by, by what we have done rather than who we are now. And, and the scars are kind of going to be apparent for everybody to see. I mean, think about it. When you look around at other people, we think about the decisions that they have made in their lives and, and we make a judgment call about that person because of what they have done, right? Let's be real. We judge other people based on the things that they have done, really because of who they used to be, an action that maybe took place last week, an action that took place last year. Maybe it was even an action that took place back in high school and we hold grudges because of what they have done. We hold grudges because of who they used to be. I mean, and, and because of this, we assume people see us the same way, or at least I assume people see me the same way as well because of this. And maybe it just means I judge more people than you guys do. I don't know. But I think this about myself all the time, right? Because I tend to, I, I tend to be a, a perfectionist. I, want, I never want to be seen as, as less than I never want people to think that I don't measure up. I want to be the best at everything. I want to be capable. And it isn't even because I want to impress other people. I just have the standard in my mind of who it is that I'm supposed to be, who it is that I think I'm supposed to be. And I want to hit that standard every single time. And if I don't, then I feel like at that point that I'm failing. And then I worry other people are going to see me the same way. 
I worry that if I feel like a failure, then other people are also going to assume that I'm like, like they see, they would see me based on what I have said at one point in my life, maybe a prior decision that I made. I am driven oftentimes by not making mistakes. And when I make a mistake, I fear people will see that and then judge me because of it. That's why I think for me, envy is the sin that I, I tend to struggle with most. This idea of comparison. That's why if I find myself on social media too much, I'm usually in a worse mood because I'm like, everybody's life is better than me. Everybody's highlight reel is better than my own. This constant comparison of, of other people to, to up my own standard really is what I, what I kind of hold myself to. And I recognize it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But that's so often what tends to drive me, that pursuit of perfection. So for a second, I want you to just, to just think to yourself, close your eyes. Let's do that. Everybody just close your eyes. Let's close your eyes. Good. Now I want you with your eyes closed to think to yourself about the sin that tends to hang on in your life. The sin that whatever it is, you just can't seem to kick that sin. It just kind of festers or maybe you get rid of it for a little while and then when you get stressed out, you go back to that sin. I don't know what it is. But just think about that sin. Okay, now everybody open your eyes. Now I want you to, to take out a piece of paper, write down that sin. You can give it to us. Write your name at the top. I was just kidding. We would never do that. Some of you were like, I got paper ready. Uh, just think about that, that sin. And I want you to, to recognize, though, now that, that, that you are more than that sin if you have said yes to Jesus. And I'm going to show you how in these verses. This is starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. This John we're talking about here is John the Baptist, by the way, okay? So now John's disciples and, his, and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins." Okay, so this is story three of five that Mark is writing out. That, that, that Mark is writing about these altercations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Last week we talked about the first two of these different confrontations, and and we talked about the second one being Levi's party, where Levi invited a whole bunch of his friends to come and meet Jesus. Right? We have Levi, this tax collector, this guy who is sinner of sinners. The Jews hated him, and Jesus is like, hey, Levi, come and follow me, and Levi's like, all right, sweet. So Levi goes and follows Jesus, this Jewish rabbi that everybody really wanted an opportunity to, to kind of be mentored by a rabbi in that, in that era, especially if you were Jewish. And so he follows him, and Levi's like, you know what? The most important thing is that all of my friends now come and meet this rabbi. Come and meet this Jesus guy. And so he invites his friends over for a party, and most scholars think that this story right here comes on the heels of that party, or comes actually during that party. 
Now, we've got to recognize that we think these stories in Mark probably aren't chronological. They're placed there thematically for, for uh, Mark to be able to drive this, this point home, this narrative home of Jesus and the Pharisees kind of having this, this rift in between the two of them. But regardless, that's kind of the, the scene that's being, uh, being set. So here we have Jesus and his disciples. They're being called out for not fasting. And most people think, but most people tend to think at this point, well, yeah, they were fasting, they were religious, there's some sort of laws that they probably needed to follow. What was it that Jesus and his disciples weren't doing when maybe they were supposed to be doing? Actually, that's not true. Actually, if we look at what's going on, we look at the, the, the kind of Old Testament way of fasting, there's only two reasons you would ever, you would ever fast in the Old Testament. The first reason and the most common reason for fasting in the Old Testament, it was usually because somebody died, right? A loved one, someone that you you really cared about, you would fast to kind of share your grief, to show your grief, to share uh, like that you were walking through difficulty with this person, right? So that's the first reason you would fast. The second reason you would fast was um, because they had a day called the Day of Atonement, this is the only, the only Old Testament reason that all Jews were called to fast on the Day of Atonement. You want to do more reading about it? Enjoy. It's Leviticus 16. Enjoy it. Okay? But that being said, it was not the Day of Atonement at this point. There was no specific reason Jesus and his disciples should have been fasting other than the fact that the Pharisees and John's disciples were fasting. That's it. So there is this application of other people's decisions to the disciples that doesn't quite seem to line up. And we see this in, the, in churches today as well, where we try to, to impose our own extra biblical conviction onto other people's lives. And this isn't where we're going to land the sermon. This is a fun little detour the Holy Spirit took me on first service, so you guys get to enjoy the, the trip as well. Okay, but there's two things that, that, that stick out. There's many, many more that we would tend to see. But, but we have this idea of, of Christian freedom as believers. This idea that really within moderation, we can kind of do what it is that we want to do as long as we're being lawful in the midst of doing it. But what tends to happen is that maybe you or I get convicted of something that could be a stumbling block to other people. So because of that, I'm simply not going to do it. That doesn't mean, though, that other people, other Christians, also don't have to do it. One of the best examples from probably 20 or 30 years ago is the, the idea of tattoos, right? I mean, tattoos back in the day. If you got a tattoo, man, you were a heathen. Right? You were on your way to hell. You were probably in a biker gang and you listened to that ACDC stuff. You know what I mean? Like that used to be the way that tattoos were seen. And people would oftentimes use that scripture that your body is a temple of God. You want to treat it appropriately, like all that stuff, which I agree with. But there is no biblical standing for this idea that you cannot get a tattoo. It was just some people's conviction that you shouldn't get a tattoo applied to everybody else. And then all of a sudden we had a hang up, okay? The other one, the more common one that we would see today is the idea of alcohol, okay? I know, we're talking about alcohol in a Baptist church. Everybody hold on to your seatbelts, okay? The idea of alcohol. Now the Bible specifically says, do not give in to drunkenness. 
And I think there's other things that you should consider before you partake in alcohol. But oftentimes in the gospel, and even in this story alone, we see this idea of wine being poured into wineskins. We see Jesus's, his first miracle was turning water into wine, right? And so the idea of alcohol and Jesus and his disciples having alcohol, I mean, it's apparent all over the gospel. It is true. And there's some people who would say, well, that's more like grape juice. Like that would be like common grape juice back in the day and compared to what we have today and that sort of thing. The reality is, is that what has happened in the church as well is that people have been convicted of the idea of drinking alcohol, which is totally okay. But then they have applied that conviction to other people. They have applied that same conviction that they have personally to the rest of the world and called it a biblical worldview. And so while some people should completely and totally abstain from alcohol, they shouldn't touch it because that is their conviction. And that's between them and the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that maybe gets passed down from Scripture in different places. But then there's other people who do not have that conviction, who still have the wisdom of Scripture, and, the, and Scripture is not barring them from having a drink of alcohol. This is the same thing that is going on here with the disciples. This is the same thing that is going on here with Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus and the Pharisees here, the Pharisees are like, why aren't your people fasting? Why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus is like, why would they be fasting? There is no reason for them to be fasting. They have applied these extra biblical convictions to Jesus and his disciples. And we don't know why John's disciples here are fasting. There's some scholars who believe that, that John's disciples at this point were fasting because John maybe had already gotten arrested and they were grieving the idea of their leader most likely dying. It's a plausible explanation, but it's not explicitly spelled out for us as to why they were fasting. We do know, however, why the Pharisees were fasting. The Pharisees at this point are fasting because the Pharisees would fast every single Monday and Thursday, and they would make sure that everybody knew about it. There was no law saying they had to. There was no law saying that religious leaders had to fast every single Monday and every single Thursday. There was no reason for it. They would just do it to make sure people knew how holy they were. So there seems to be this question of why aren't you doing things, Jesus and your disciples, like the rest of us religious people? Why wouldn't you hold to the same convictions that we are currently holding to? Why are you doing something different than we are? Then Jesus gives a great answer here. He essentially says, there is nothing to be grieving over. There is no reason my disciples should be grieving. It's not the day of atonement. And the Son of Man is here. The bridegroom himself is here, is what he tells them. He says, why would they be fasting? To fit in with you guys? <laughs> no, no way. But don't worry. There will be a time when all of my disciples will grieve. There will be a time when all of my disciples will fast because I won't always be here with them. And in that day, they will get an opportunity to fast just like you guys. But until that day, forget about it. I'm here. Let's enjoy it. Let's recline at the table and have ourselves a party. But he doesn't end that explanation here. He, he, he decides to double down, actually triple down in these stories. And he uses a couple different illustrations to really kind of hammer it, hammer it home. The illustrations are really the same idea told in two different ways. He tells them, no one sews an unshrunk piece of fabric 
an unshrunk piece of cloth onto an old garment, right? I have no clue. Like, this doesn't help me at all. I don't sew. I don't patch things. I buy new stuff for my kids as soon as holes. That's not true. There's probably holes in their jeans right now. Okay, but, but essentially that's what Jesus is saying. And the metaphor is kind of lost on us because clothes normally aren't patched as they once were. Sometimes they are, but normally they're not. Now if you get a hole in your jeans, you seem to be even cooler, right? I really felt like a dad as I said that. And anybody else was like, man, Peter's a dad this morning. Yeah, okay, you're cooler with those holes. So the other illustration here is more famous, though, among Christians. This is one that I've heard preached hundreds and hundreds of times, maybe not hundreds of times, but he says, you wouldn't pour new wine into old wineskins or else the old wineskins are going to burst and all the wine would be ruined. And so I've heard this so many times, but as I was growing up, I didn't understand it because I have no context for it. None of us understand what wineskins are. For me, they just like remind me of like those Boy Scout or like Eagle Scout, like leather canteens that get strapped over your shoulder. I'm like, oh, clearly that's what a wine, a wine skin is. And so I did a little bit of research to make sure we understood the word picture that Jesus is painting here. So in ancient times, people made, made wine through this fermentation process like they still do through the aging of wine. But what they would do is they would put that wine in new, unused wineskins. It wasn't like this big barrel that they would put together or anything like that. And then they would slowly kind of put the wine in these wineskins and, and call it a day. Actually, these wineskins would have been made from, from the skin of a goat or the skin of a lamb in some way. And they were the primary vessels for this aging process. The entire aging process was in that skin. So these new, these new wineskins were filled with this unfermented juice and left to age for a period of time. Now, I don't, I don't know much about wine. I don't know much about the fermentation process, um, but the gases that were formed within these, these wineskins is like the flavor and the color and the balance and the smell and all of those things that wine connoisseurs understand that I have no clue about. I'm like, it's red. I know that. Um, but as those things were formed, because the wineskin was new, it could expand. And that wineskin could, could hold both the gas and the wine that was sitting in there. Because it was fresh, it was new, it was pliable. Anybody, anybody in here have like an old baseball or softball glove that's just old and crusty and sitting in the garage and can't, can't fold anymore? Yeah, I saw a wife look at her husband over here. Right? Like, I have that glove. I know that glove. Right? But when I first got that glove, that's not how it was. That glove was soft and it was pliable and I put oil in it, right? And as I play catch, I was like, man, this is a great piece of leather. But as it sits, as it ages, as it gets exposed to the elements, that glove slowly but surely became more and more crusty until now it works better as a paperweight than catching anything with it. And this is the same thing that I imagine would happen with these wineskins, is as they age, they are no longer stretchy. They're no longer pliable at this point. So if you tried to pour new wine, this wine that was not yet fermented into these old wineskins, all of a sudden, as, the, as not just the juice, but the gas began to form and fill up, it would burst these wineskins and everything would be ruined. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So why, why would he say that? Why does Jesus talk about wine this whole time? He says it's because he is letting the Pharisees know, or essentially, he didn't say this, he's letting the Pharisees know that he hasn't come to make some alterations to their religion. He hasn't come to try to stuff something new into what once was. He hasn't come to put a new piece of cloth onto some, some you know, pants that need to be patched. That's not why Jesus came. He hasn't come to do what they have always done. He's come to try, and he's not come to try to fit in who he is and why he came into the old way of doing things. If he tried to do that, it simply wouldn't work and everything would be ruined. Jesus here in this story is the new wine, which is great foreshadowing when you think about the way so many people in the world do communion. The idea that Jesus is the new wine I thought was really, really cool. And the new wine doesn't fit in with the way things used to be done. The new piece of cloth doesn't fit with the old clothing because it won't work and it's going to tear it even more. It'll shrink and get torn away from everything that was meant to be accomplished simply won't be accomplished. Something new is upon them. And the Pharisees can't yet see it. We see the same thing going on in verses 23 to 28. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as, as his disciples walked along, they began to pick up or pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said, said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest... He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some, some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So we've, been, we've time traveled here, okay? So be aware of this. Okay, this last story and this story aren't right next to each other. It wasn't like they were upset at them for not fasting and now they're upset at them for, for eating food out of a grain field or anything like that. These stories aren't right next to each other chronologically. Again, thematically is the way, way that we have seen it. But we have another run in here with the Pharisees and Jesus. And the disciples and Jesus, they're, they're hungry, they're walking through a field and, and they decide to pick some grain so they have something to eat. That seems, seems normal to us, right? Even if it is the Sabbath, you still need, may need to take a trip to Cain's to make sure you've got some food in your belly after church, right? Like that is the equivalent of what, what is going on in this story. And so the picking of the grain, though, isn't actually the issue for the Pharisees. The issue for the Pharisees is actually in verse 24 is, is working on the Sabbath, See, what had happened is there's all these extra biblical laws, these traditions that were kind of put into place by the religious leaders. There's actually a group of writings called the Mishnah. It's all these extra biblical Jewish writings and, and traditions. And in the Mishnah, uh, it actually forbid 39 specific acts on the Sabbath. There were 39 things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath, one of which was reaping. So Jesus and his disciples, as they're walking through and they're hungry and they grab a head of grain because they want a snack, the religious officials at the time had said, time out, y'all are reaping. That's not okay. How dare you do something like that on the Sabbath? How dare you work 
on the Sabbath. And so in verses 25 to 26, Jesus refers to actually the actions of David, goes back to someone the religious leaders would be able to understand a little bit better. And Jesus speaks to when David was in need, when David was hungry, and how he and his buddies, they entered the house of God, they ate the bread, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also give it to those who were with them. So Jesus, at this point, he acknowledges what David did. David did what was not lawful to do. He said, look, remember when David actually broke the law? Jesus, hear me. He's not even defending himself at this point. He's citing precedent at this point. And the precedent he's citing is not in his favor. He's saying, oh, well, remember, though, when David did it and David broke the law? (laughs) Look, if you're going to cite precedent, at least make sure that the precedent you're citing is on your side. But that's not what Jesus is is doing here. And I would want to start, like, defending Jesus. But notice that Jesus doesn't do that. In verse 27, Jesus simply concludes. He says, hey, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So was Jesus breaking Sabbath law? Doesn't matter. That's what Jesus is saying here. I mean, my logical conclusion would probably, probably be no, but that's not what Jesus argues here. That's not what he says, which is fascinating. Jesus isn't interested in defending himself. Jesus is interested in getting the Pharisees to see who he is. Jesus doesn't debate what constitutes work on the Sabbath. Did you know there was actually a specific number of steps you were allowed to take on the Sabbath before it was considered sinful, according to the Mishnah? Like, you had to sit there and count your steps, and if you got to, like, 199 and you're three steps away from bed, you probably had to, like, swan dive in, right? Like, there was a specific, like, that's how, how accurate these people were, like, how addicted to the law they were at this point. And again, Jesus, he's not interested in defending himself. Jesus doesn't address any distinction between the Pharisees' tradition and what was actually written in the law, because again, the Mishnah was not the law. This is all extra biblical stuff, so he doesn't say like, hey, that's a tradition. That's not part of the Mosaic law. He doesn't say anything like that. Jesus said that what David did was actually unlawful. Jesus doesn't say that that hunger and taking basic nourishment doesn't violate the Sabbath. He doesn't say any of these things. The point seems to be be this. If, If David, the Lord's anointed, King David, back in the day, golden era of Israel, the Lord's anointed one and his companions, if they could eat the consecrated bread, how much more can the Messiah and his buddies do it? Jesus' point focuses on a foundational issue that he continues to drive home with the Pharisees over and over and over again, this relationship between the law and the Son of Man, the relationship between the way things used to be, the way things the Pharisees wanted to keep things, the old wineskins, and the new wine. That's what Jesus is constantly going back to here. The point Jesus is making is intentional. Jesus is not breaking the law of Moses And he's not being shown as a sinful person. Jesus is doing this as a deliberate sign, like the refusal to fast just because other people are fasting. This is a sign that the king is here. This is a sign that the kingdom is arriving and the new system and the new direction is upon all of them. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening in these two stories. 
Jesus just keeps saying over and over and over again, like, I understand what you used to do. That doesn't work anymore because the kingdom of God is here. Jesus' point isn't that humanitarian needs trump the law. His point is that all the authority of the king has now arrived. All the authority of the king has now arrived. This is the point Jesus is making. The Sabbath was made for man. But the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus isn't a lawbreaker simply because of who Jesus is. Jesus in these stories really shows a a microcosm of what he has done in our lives or the entire reason that he came in the first place. Not to just set up the kingdom of God across the world, but to set up the kingdom of God in our own lives as well for each and every one of us. That's why Jesus came. And Jesus didn't come to repair you. I know some of you are like, wait, what? Time out. Can we rewind that? Jesus didn't come to repair you. He didn't come to you as an old piece of of cloth that needed to be repaired. He didn't come to pour new wine into your old wineskin sinful life. He didn't come to make sure you were obeying the law and, and doing the things that you used to do. Jesus came to make the world brand new. Jesus came to make you brand new. Not to repair you. You are a new creation. Your old way of thinking, your thoughts of guilt, your thoughts of shame get to be wiped clean because our Messiah has come. The entire way that we perceive ourselves, the entire way that we judge ourselves based on the decisions that we used to make, our sin, our guilt, it is all gone and taken care of as soon as Jesus came onto the scene, took our sins upon his broken body, and conquered death three days later. Brand new. Second Corinthians, it highlights this for us. It's in, it's in chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The established guilt in our lives is gone. You aren't broken and needing to be fixed. You are an old creation needing to be renewed. If you have said yes to Jesus and made him Lord of your life, you're not an old wineskin. You're not an old tradition. You aren't the sum of your old life. You are now the righteousness of of God. So now it is our responsibility to live like it. This, extra, this extraordinary gift of righteousness is secured through Christ's death on the cross. That's what 2 Corinthians tells us. God made him to be sin so that those who are wicked could become righteous. So that those who are sinners can be free. 
so that those who would experience spiritual death are now given eternal life. You are no longer the sum total of your mistakes. Hear that. You are no longer the sum total of your mistakes. You are now the sum effect of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So live like it. Stop putting patches on a life that has been replaced by Jesus' sacrifice. Stop giving in to your traditions. They don't hold any weight with God in the first place. Stop trying to be pious and start living in a way that is evident in your life, so that, that, that in your life that is no longer even yours. A life that belongs to Christ and Christ alone. Right? Depending on the sin that you thought about at the beginning, like, like your life, it does not belong to lust. It does not belong to your bank account. It does not belong to your family. It does not belong to your popularity. It does not belong to your success. Your life, if Christ is Lord of your life, it is no longer yours. It is the Savior's of the world, and he will do with it what he pleases for his glory and his glory alone. Full stop. Yet we sit here and we think to ourselves, I've got torn and tattered clothes. Jesus, come patch me up again. We think to ourselves that, man, I would, I'm pretty frustrated by the tough situation that I'm in. Man, I've been really, really frustrated and and this is hard. And we don't find the joy in the mundane. We don't recognize the blessing of this new life that Christ has given us. You are a new creation. We are a new creation. And I'm just as guilty of all of us as anybody else in here of this. Like, I go back to that on a regular basis. Yesterday, man, I threw myself a pity party. Anybody else with me? It was yesterday tough. Someone raise your hand, please. Thank you. I know it wasn't just me. But man, yesterday was, was just one of those days that I just wanted to just sit around and just like mope. One of those days where I, I looked around and thought, you know, everyone else has their lives together. Everyone else has it figured out. Everyone else is more successful than me. Everyone has nicer stuff. Everyone's kids pick up after themselves, which I know is a lie from the pit of hell. Everyone else has their yards done, and I got stuck in this comparison game between myself and everybody else. This sin of envy kicked back in for me. Rather than sitting and looking at the joy that was right in front of me, looking at the fact that my life is crazy because God has blessed me abundantly, and there's a lot to try and steward well. Rather than thinking that I have a, a great job that I love to do on a regular basis, I kept thinking about people further along in their careers. Rather than thinking about how we have been so blessed to have five incredible boys, I was thinking about the trail of destruction that they constantly leave behind them. And then my wife came in the garage where I was throwing my pity party where men tend to go. I was trying to clean stuff up and she told me, hey, just come outside, come jump in the pool with the boys. Go play with the boys. And so I was like, fine. I'm hot anyway. This wasn't your decision. It was my decision. I'm going out to the pool on my own accord. 
So I walked out there, jumped in the pool, splashed around, threw boys in the pool, wrestled with them, dominated them in basketball, did all the things that dads are supposed to do. And in that moment, I was reminded that Christ has blessed me immeasurably with a brand new life. That I don't have to fret in the same way the world does because Jesus made me a new creation. I don't have to envy other people's life because Christ has made mine new. I don't have to compare myself to others and become envious of what I can't have because Christ has made me new. That I don't have to have anxiety over messes around the house. I'm just kidding. I'm still going to have anxiety over messes around the house. But I'm a new creation, and Jesus came to make me new. He has made me right, made me his righteousness. And it is my job, and it is my responsibility then to live like it, to show that joy, to show the hope that only comes from him. That's it. That's our responsibility. That is all of our jobs for all of us who would say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. Can you imagine what it would look like if we began to take this responsibility of being God's righteousness seriously? What that would look like. Can you imagine if we came to recognize that that we are new wineskins? That we are a new creation. Not some patchwork quilt that God has to keep sewing up. That God replaced the entire thing. He replaced the law with his grace. Which is why the disciples weren't concerned about fasting. And he has replaced us with his righteousness. And here's the thing. You did nothing to earn it. You did zero to earn it. You did nothing to become righteous. Jesus alone is responsible for all of it because he can, again, he came and willingly went to the cross for all of us who would make him Lord of our lives. That's the gospel. So the question then becomes this morning, in this new wineskin life that Jesus has set up for you, in the same way that he set up this new wineskin kingdom, How are you utilizing it to glorify him? Are you being like me and fretting with envy and anxiety? Maybe it's you're still struggling with greed or you're struggling with porn or pride or whatever it may be and just apologizing every day, thinking to yourself, well, it's just kind of who I am. It's always going to be there. So I'm just going to resign myself to that sinful life. Or are you thinking to yourself, I am a new creation. This sin that I struggle with, that Jesus has paid the price for. And if I'm I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to honor his righteousness, I need to do my best to live a life that is worthy of that calling. I need to make sure that this new wineskin of Christ's kingdom on earth, Christ's kingdom in my life, is on full display for all those who don't yet know him. So today, in the same way that we started, we're going we're gonna to just close our eyes. Do me a favor, just close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, I, w- I want you to think about that sin that maybe you are constantly feeling shame over. Think about that sin, that habit that you can't seem to kick. 
Or maybe you've kicked it numerous times in your life. And when things get difficult, things get hard, you go straight back to it. Like a dog to his vomit. I just want you to place yourself there for a second. And, and if you want to, just, just change that perception that you have. Of just, I'm a, I'm a broken, busted up, tattered old piece of clothing that Jesus just has to keep sewing. Like if that's your perception, you're missing the point. That you're actually a brand new creation. And it doesn't mean, with eyes still closed, it doesn't mean that you're just going to be delivered from sin as soon as your eyes are open. This does not mean that, that if you go home and on your way home, man, you're not going to get angry at anybody for waiting too long at a stoplight. It simply comes with the recognition that you are a new creation. And it's our responsibility to both recognize that and live like that. So if you want, if you just pray with me in response. Father, I am so sorry for going back to this sin. Because I know I am a new creation. And I am sorry for allowing my past life to define me when you came to earth to establish a new kingdom. Father, a kingdom that isn't bound by my actions, a new kingdom that isn't bound by how good I can be or laws that I have to follow, that your kingdom is about grace upon grace upon grace in my life, and because of your grace, I am a new creation. So God, with that knowledge... I am sorry for the sin that I continue to revel in. I am sorry for that addiction. I am sorry for that safety blanket that I cling to when times get tough. I am sorry that I have sold your sacrifice short because I think that it is just who I am. Father, today we recognize that we are not our sin. That is not how we are defined if you are Lord of our lives. We are defined by your sacrifice and nothing else. So thank you for that, Father. And with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if there are those in here who have not yet made Jesus Lord of their lives, I would invite you simply to pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And B, I believe you sent your son, though, Father, to the cross to die for me. To set up this new kingdom, the Jesus' new wine in the world. New wine in our lives. I believe that, Father. And C, that I choose to follow you every single day as we recognize that we're a new creation, but then we also recognize that the work must continue to be more and more holy every single day as you have renewed us. 
So we love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.